I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read in just a moment from just verse 24, but we're going to study all of this chapter together this morning. We've been looking at this series we've called Be the Church, working from chapter 8 of Acts on through chapter 12 this morning. Uh, we're wrapping everything up today. Uh, this is where we're going to stop, and we're going to come back to Acts next year and, and pick up at the beginning of chapter 13 and see the mission of the church to the ends of the earth. But it's appropriate we end here because we see the, the wrapping up of what we call the, the Judea and Samaria ministry of the church. And so we're going to walk through that. I want to explain a little more clearly what that means and how we see this, this book ended here at the end of chapter 12. But the title of today's message is very simple. Be faithful. Be faithful. As a church, we're called to be faithful. We've been given the testimony of the church up until this point and, and all the ways in which God was blessing the work of the church through, I've emphasized this many times, through no-named people, right? Many times it's just a, a group of, of fledgling believers who are new to their faith, and yet they are advancing the mission of God onward. And I've encouraged you many times that if God can use one changed life, he can certainly use ours. And so as we are called to be faithful, we arrive at Acts chapter 12. Now, as we get to the conclusion of this series, we get to a juncture in the story of the church where things could have easily gotten off track. But things were going well in the church at Antioch. We saw that last week. Saul and Barnabas, they were, they were absolutely crushing it when it came to making disciples. They were doing everything they were supposed to be, to be doing and more. They had gotten it right. They were encouraging new believers in their faith. They were encouraging the brand new church in Antioch and making disciples and doing exactly what we're called to do. But as we get to chapter 12, we find that the apostles, the leaders of the church, they were still in Jerusalem. And things, as we will see in just a moment, they weren't so good. In fact, it was a really tumultuous time. Things were not going great in Jerusalem. As, it, as well as things were going elsewhere, as the church was scattered, we come back to Jerusalem and we see the church in great hostility. God was going to have to move in radical and miraculous ways for the mission of God to go onward. And so I want to draw you into the sermon in this way. Listen carefully. Maybe we are not imprisoned by political leaders. Maybe our lives, they're not necessarily in jeopardy because of our faith. But we still need, listen close, we still need the same movement of God now in the church. And this is why. We are not arrested in physical chains, but the enemy, Satan, in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, has arrested the church. Maybe he's gotten us sidetracked on the wrong things. He derails or attempts to derail the mission of God by stealing our affections and arresting our attention on all the wrong things. And so I put in front of you this main idea, this controlling idea of the sermon. Listen to this. The faithfulness of the church and the sovereignty of God move the mission onward. 
Notice the two things coupled together because this is what we're going to emphasize today. The faithfulness of the church, but very important here, the sovereignty of God, his initiative, just like he's done this all along, he is the one who is propelling the mission onward. Now, we have a part in this. God has invited us into this mission, and we are to be faithful to the gospel. We're to be faithful to the Great Commission. We're to be faithful in making disciples. But it is he alone who blesses that activity and moves the mission onward. With all that in mind, would you stand with me as I read to you Acts chapter 12 and just verse 24. Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. Listen carefully. It's such a short verse, but it's packed with so much significance. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blessing of your word. And God, I pray as you have ministered to me through your word throughout this week and encouraged me to be faithful. God, I pray that you will call us as a church to be faithful. Lord, challenge us this morning. Convict us. Step on all of our toes and and draw us into who you want us to be. Lord, I pray that we leave this place encouraged to be the church that you've called us to be. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Fill this place with your spirit. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Be faithful. Be faithful. And we're going to see the church all throughout chapter 12 being faithful to the mission of God in spite of many obstacles. They're going to be very faithful to some very specific activities. And the first one we see is this. Faithful churches pray to a God who listens. Faithful churches, they pray to a God who listens. Let me read to you the first four verses of chapter 12. Look at it with me. It says, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So we find this character, Herod, mentioned. Now, this is not the same Herod from Matthew chapter 2. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. This is, in fact, his grandson. And here's what we find out about these two Herods. Generationally, they are in keeping with each other because we find this to be true. He was paranoid. He was hot-headed, and he was absolutely consumed with keeping the peace in Rome at all costs. This was his job. And so when he looked at the activity in the church, he saw this band, band of believers, this band of brothers and sisters, and they are causing great turmoil in the city. They're preaching about this Messiah King Jesus who was once dead but now alive, and this was causing great unrest all around. People were being healed. Demons were being cast out. There was a lot happening, and as a result, there was great unrest in the city of Jerusalem. So he had a job to do. He had to keep peace. You may be reminded this is exactly what happened in Jesus' earthly life. This was his activity on the earth as well. Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. He absolutely unseated every person ruling at that time. 
And as a result, this great following comes around Jesus. As a result, because of his claims, people believe him, and he has these people called disciples who are following him and listening to his teachings. And so what happens? He's arrested. He's put on trial, and it's very easy. It's an easy decision for Pilate to do what? He washes his hands. You remember this. He washes his hands. We're going to look at this next week. He washes his hands, and he says, hey, this ain't on me. It's on you because this guy's causing unrest, and so I'm going to give to you what you want for the sake of peace. Herod, again, as we get to chapter 12 in Acts, long after Jesus' earthly ministry, the same type of thing is happening. The violence against the, against the church, I want you to see this, it was escalating, especially back in Jerusalem. Remember back in chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3, the last time we spent considerable time paying attention to what was happening in Jerusalem. Stephen was stoned. Remember that? He was stoned because he preached this great sermon. He called people to repentance. Things had not gotten much better for the apostles. In fact, they had gotten worse. We should also note that in these first four verses, this is the first mention of an apostle being martyred because of his faith. Stephen was not an apostle. He was set apart as one of the first deacons, but he was not an apostle. The apostles were obviously very important. These were the leaders, the fathers of the church. These were the guys who were preaching and teaching. They were the primary leaders in the Jerusalem church. And so it is significant when James is martyred. It's a big deal because James had also walked with Jesus. He was one of the first disciples called to follow Jesus, we find. Things were not good. But none of this derailed the church. Why? Check out what happens in verse 5. All of this turmoil, chaos all throughout Jerusalem. But listen as I read this. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was praying fervently to God for him. Did you catch that? Peter was in prison, but the church was praying fervently. Prayer is often our last resort, but it must instead be our first. Prayer is not the first step in retreat or surrender. Instead, it's the first step on the offense. So notice these two points of application. Here's the first one. When we pray, we trust that God's might is sufficient. When we pray, we trust that God's might is sufficient. Saul, on his way, you might remember this, to destroy the last vestiges of the flourishing but fledgling church of Christ, God had radically called him to repentance. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see God taking those who were enemies of the church and enemies of God and turning everything around and using those things for his glory alone. It's not just Saul that we see this happen with. Notice this also. Remember, Pharaoh, back in Exodus, in his defiance, he was seeking to destroy the last remnant of God's people by letting them waste away in captivity. But what did God do? Through his defiance and through those plagues, he turned everything around and he said, look how great I am. I am a mighty God. I am the only God worthy of worship. Even Satan back in the garden, the supreme enemy of God. And he, as he slithered up to Eve and he enticed her to fall into the trap of his temptation, through his deception, he had given birth to a seed that would grow throughout generations and sprout as the root of Jesse. 
the son of David, and he would be the Messiah. You see that? Over and over again, God uses those who were his enemies for his glory, and that is the God the church was trusting in. God's supreme might, it will not be suppressed by anyone or anything. When we pray, this is the mighty God we are praying to, church. So it's no wonder the church was praying. Of course they prayed. They knew this God, the same God we know. So when we pray, we trust in a God who is sufficiently mighty. But notice this also. When we pray, we trust that God's will is right. We trust that his will is right. I want everyone to see how the church remained faithful in praying, even though they had previously not gotten what they wanted. What happened to James just a few verses earlier? It says very clearly, James died. This leader of the church, this person of great importance, he died. Of course the church was praying for James. Of course the church was praying for their leaders. But James had been killed. But they still prayed big prayers. I want to clue you into something, how this has personally affected me this week. And I, I joked around a moment ago with Lynn yesterday. I am willing to admit when I am wrong. When I have misspoken, all the wives said amen, right? Cherie said, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm willing to admit when I've wronged, when I've made a mistake. And I was teaching just a few weeks ago on prayer here on Wednesday night. And I was talking to those who were there and I was saying, listen, I, I really have a hard time when I'm teaching someone to pray and I'm asking them to pray for God's will to be done and we rest in that and we want to be careful to be sensitive to what God wants and not just our intentions and our own agenda. And what I found myself doing, whether I realized it or not, I was teaching the people there maybe not to pray really big prayers. Uh, telling them maybe without realizing it, I don't want you to be disappointed when God's will doesn't line up with yours. As I came to this passage, I saw that was very unbiblical and wrong to say such a thing. This church continued to pray big prayers of deliverance in spite of not getting what they wanted. When we pray, we trust that God's will is right, even if over and over again, his will has not always lined up with our own. Certainly, everyone grieved when James was killed, and yet they kept praying. So faithful churches, they pray to a God who listens. He is mighty. He is always right. He will not be unseated. And so we keep on praying. But notice this second truth as we move to this next scene in the story. And it's this. Faithful churches trust in a God who delivers. Faithful churches trust in a God who delivers. Let me read this to you down through verse 12, beginning at verse 6. Listen carefully. The scene changes. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial... That very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Check out this. Peter's asleep, guys. 
I mean, he knows what's happened to James, right? I mean, did he forget or maybe that was kept from him? No, he certainly knew exactly what had taken place. Most commentators, when they write about this, they say that most likely this prison cell, it overlooked everything that had happened to James. In fact, he had probably looked right out the window and seen everything that had just taken place. But yet, he was asleep between these guards. If we look just a few verses earlier, we find out that four times four equals what? 16. There were 16 guards responsible for watching over Peter at this time. Suddenly, verse 7, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke him up and said, quick, get up. And the chains, they fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and he followed, and he, he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and the second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside, they passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp. And from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and they were praying. Notice where Peter goes after his great escape. He goes back to his brothers and sisters who were praying all the while. And so we see this about how God's deliverance should always affect us. Listen to this about God's deliverance. God's deliverance should draw us into community. God's deliverance should draw us into community. Notice also the church had not dispersed all this time. They were still there. Not only were they there, they were faithfully praying. They weren't hiding. Check out the detail in verse 13. Let me read that to you. It says, he knocked at the door of the outer gate and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. This activity of knocking at an outer gate, this is what this communicates. This was a big structure in the middle of the city. For some reason up until this point, I had thought that this fledgling church was in hiding somewhere. They were deep in a cave or in a basement, hiding out, scared for their lives. No, this is a large building. If you look at architecture from that time period, if there was an outer gate, there was a really big building in the middle of town. They weren't scared. We are a church also made up of very different people. Notice what's going on here. There's this group of people. There's some names that are mentioned, but no doubt it is a diverse group of people. We have different family heritages, we have different occupations, different levels of wealth, different family dynamics, perhaps even different political views. But guess what? Every single person who was there in Jerusalem and every single person who is a child of God in this room, we share this in common. We have been delivered. We have been rescued by the King of Kings. When Peter arrived, he had that in common with all those people in that house. Our deliverance, our common deliverer is what holds us together. Where else was this fledgling church going to go? Of course they stuck around. They trusted in this great deliverer with their souls and now with their very lives. And so they stuck together. If we're going to be crazy about Jesus, church, we're going to be crazy together. 
these people were absolutely insane for the cause of Christ, risking everything for the mission of God. God's deliverance should draw us into community, but let's keep reading beginning at verse 14. Notice what happens. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Imagine what Peter thought for a moment. Like, hey, man, I'm here. Like, this is me. Open the gate. Just let me in. And she just runs off. And then she goes on in verse 15. (laughs) They go on, rather. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it's his angel, perhaps. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. We're going to come back to that in just a second. They were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand, in verse 17, to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And and he left and he went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers, I would think so, as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. I want you to see this second way that God's deliverance affects us. It doesn't just draw us into community. It does this. Very important. God's deliverance should always amaze us. God's deliverance should always amaze us. We should always be captivated by our great deliverer and what he has done for us. Remember what I told you back just a few verses ago in verse 14. It says they were amazed. They had no idea what they had just witnessed. Perhaps they would have sang this sweet hymn had they had it at that time. Listen to these words. Replay this scene in your mind as I read these to you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. No doubt it was this amazing grace that brought amazement that day. They did not feel entitled to such grace. Instead, they were amazed. Friend, when is the last time you have also been amazed by God's incredible grace towards you? That is the grace that saved you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was given to you by his mercy. We're reminded that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Faithful churches, pray. Faithful churches trust in a great deliverer. But as I get to this last section of the narrative, we see this final point. Listen carefully. Faithful churches worship a God who is worthy. Faithful churches worship a God who is worthy. Look with me at verse 20. It said, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is kind of a segue, so don't get lost here. We really do go to another scene, completely removed from what's going on in the church, but it's very significant, so listen carefully. Together, they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. 
the assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. We find this in Herod's brutal end at verse 23. Listen carefully. Our word worship must be to God only. Our worship must be to God only. This was the initial demand of God from the earliest days of Israel, we find. Maybe you've been reading in Scripture along with us, and you just finished up Deuteronomy. And you'll remember back in chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5, these words. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. From the earliest days, as he began to deal with his remnant, his people, he began to demand their exclusive worship. God will not share his glory with another. As we move forward as a church, as this church moved forward, the counsel is this. We must always be aware of this unfortunate blind spot in the church. We cannot make a God out of things that so easily distract us from the glory of this sovereign God. God will not share a throne with political passions, personal ambitions, or desires for prominence. God will not share a throne with people of influence, either living or deceased. God will not share a throne with our personal agendas, our struggles for power, or our egos. It must always be about him and his glory alone. This may force us to sacrifice our very own agendas. Lay everything about ourselves to the side for the sake of his glory and his mission. Herod here was not willing to do such a thing. As they shouted, surely this is a God, I'm sure he sat up there on his throne, dressed in prominence and welcomed every word of praise. There's no room for this in God's economy. It doesn't work that way. Which leads us to this place where all of this ultimately works together. Our praying, our trust, and our worship. Look with me beginning at verse 24. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. In spite of everything else that had happened. In spite of the imprisonments. In spite of those being martyred. In spite of all of this hostility. In spite of this arrogant king that was still on the loose. The word of God flourished and multiplied. Verse 25, after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. And then chapter 13, notice what happens. The scene changes once again. No doubt they had returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is significant. Look what it says. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. You remember that guy. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, notice they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, after they had prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. 
Notice this last truth. Our worship must be forward-looking. Our worship must be forward-looking to the mission of God. Flip back with me to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. I want you to turn there. I want us to read it. I want us to look at it together. I could read it to you, but I want you to see it in the scriptures. We were here last year. Don't forget the blueprint for the mission in the book of Acts. Listen carefully. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Who was it that commissioned them? In Acts chapter 13, who was it that burdened the church with commissioning Saul and Barnabas? What does it say? The Holy Spirit burdened them for the mission. And it continues. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the first eight chapters, we saw God radically at work in Jerusalem, in that fledgling church. The church was born in the midst of great strife, but by the power of the Spirit. And now over the last six weeks, we've worked from chapter 8 now through chapter 12, and we have seen God at work in Judea and Samaria as the church went onward from chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3. You remember this, the church was scattered. We've seen that Philip, he goes down to Samaria, and what happened? The word of God flourished in Samaria. So much so, the apostles left Jerusalem, came to check it out. Philip then crosses paths by God's initiative with the Ethiopian eunuch somewhere in Judea. We don't know where. And the word of God flourished in his heart and in his family. And then Saul, on the road to Damascus, no doubt somewhere in Judea, was radically changed by the power of God and his magnificent gospel. And guess what? Through his ministry, the word of God flourished. And then Peter called to go to Cornelius and lay aside every cultural boundary and barrier. He shares the gospel with this Gentile, this man who was once alienated and marginalized from birth. And God radically saves him and the word of God flourished. And then another church we saw was born in Antioch replicating everything happening in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. And this church was born outside of Jerusalem, and the word of God flourished through the ministry of that church. And now, in verse 3 of chapter 13, I told you why we would look in here, what happens. They go back to Antioch. They go back to this movement of God in Judea. And it says they sent them off. Stay tuned till next year, and we'll see what happens. God begins to move in wondrous and miraculous ways in his mission onward to the end of the earth. Why? Remember this. The faithfulness of the church and God's sovereignty is what propels the mission onward. Be faithful, church. Be the church. I've told you this many times. We see all throughout the book of Acts this church at work. We see God moving in the church. And no, we don't replicate everything that they've done. But we do have these general principles that we've drawn from this passage. Over the last six weeks, we've seen what it means to be the church, culminating to today, to be faithful to the mission of God, to trust in his sovereignty, to pray to a God who listens, to trust in a God who delivers and worship a God who is worthy. I really struggled with the conclusion for today, but I have just a very simple invitation. Two ways. 
The first one is this. Will you accept God's invitation on your life into relationship with him? That's what the church is made up of. I talked with somebody this past week and invited them to church, and they talked to me about hypocrites in the church, and I, I just agreed with them. I said, yep, that's, that's pretty accurate. That's kind of who we are. A bunch of hypocrites saved by God's grace. God's working in every person's life. He is sanctifying us, whether it be through our strife and struggles, through our own sin. He is redeeming us and calling us into relationship with him and a greater closeness and nearness. But every one of us share this in common, a great deliverer who has delivered our soul. And so I invite you into that very relationship. If you've ever never made the decision to follow Christ, let today be that day. Stay after the service, talk to me. I would love to have that opportunity to have that conversation and walk you through the scriptures and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Call me this week. Send me an email. If you're listening online, listen, I want to hear from you. Let me know. I want to know what that means to know Jesus. But secondly, this invitation is for the church. Those already in relationship with Christ. I want to ask you a simple question. What is your next step? What is your next step? Just because you're redeemed and saved by the king doesn't mean you're off the hook. Over and over again throughout Acts, we have seen God using ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And so I invite you, maybe you've sat in these pews for 30 years. I invite you. Maybe you've been here three weeks. I don't know. I invite you to that next step. Maybe it's just as simple as coming and saying, hey, pastor, listen, I've been drawn into this through something I heard in Acts. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but it's just an open invitation. I don't know. Let, let God use me. That would so encourage the work of God here. Take that next step. Act on that burden for the mission. And may God use you and use his church for his glory. Be faithful and be the church.